Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to Byline Radio, or if you're listening on Catch Up, the Byline Times podcast. This time the latest on the war in Ukraine from novelist, spoken word performer and journalist Zarina Zabrisky, who grew up in Vladimir Putin's home city of St. Petersburg, but who now lives in the state and has been giving updates on the Russian invasion of Ukraine from the start of the conflict via her blog and her Twitter feed at Zarina Zabriskie, as well as in the pages of the Byline Times. We'll hear from her shortly. Before we do, just a reminder that the Byline Times can report without fear or favour because we rely entirely for financial support on ordinary readers and listeners. We don't have a traditional proprietor. There's no one behind the scenes telling us what to print or what to think. And we're not here to support any corporate interest. As journalists, we just want to expose corruption and tell the truth. If that sounds like the kind of journalism that you want to support, then please head over to bylinetimes.com and take out a subscription to our monthly paper, The Byline Times. The paper has lots of exclusive content that you don't get anywhere else, but your subscription or your membership will help to support the website, bylinetimes.com, Byline Radio, the podcast, and Byline TV as well. So do take out a subscription if you can via bylinetimes.com. Let's get the latest now then on the situation in Ukraine. And as I say, Zarina Zabriskie, who joins us, has been following the conflict from the start. She knows Russia from the inside out, having grown up in St. Petersburg and having witnessed firsthand the ascent of Vladimir Putin. Zarina, can you tell us exactly where you are at the moment? Ah, yes. So I happen to be in Ukraine right now, actually in Odessa. Um, Briefly or not, I don't know. Uh, I was in Moldova uh, reporting from there and um, it's fairly close and it's fairly easy to get to Odessa from Moldova. Um, and I have a full accreditation from the Ministry of Defense, so I decided to just um, cross the border with a friend of mine who's a fixer here working for journalists, and um, I have quite a few interviews here, and that's why I came, um, and it seems to be worth it. So, yes, so I am I'm, I'm here right now, but uh, I prefer not for various reasons not to make it very public. So let's keep it here with our audience, not, not taking it, you know, bringing it up to to the main Twitter feed or to Facebook or elsewhere. No, absolutely. And that is understood. But you live a comfortable and a successful life in the United States. And you've spoken to us before on the Byline Times podcast. You've got a very deep interest in politics and you've explained to me in the past the evolution of Vladimir Putin's mafia state. There's nothing compelling you to go to that war zone right now. Why have you done it? Well, I mean, that's not exactly right, because there's um, there's more to it. If um, if you read my first novel, you'd see that my first protagonist is from Odessa, and that's because my roots are from Ukraine. Um, as many Jews, um, we, we come from Ukraine. And my ancestors, some of them moved to St. Petersburg from Ukraine and some stayed and some were actually uh, murdered by the Nazis. 
1942, and um, they, they are buried in the mass grave in Babi Yar, which was coincidentally hit by the Russians during the first week of this war. And my other great-grandmother is Ukrainian. Besides, I have many, many, many friends. Pretty much most of my friends are in Ukraine. And uh, I love this country. I love the idea of this country. Uh, I love the, the its useful, independent, free spirit that that really, really resonates with me. I actually was here in September and October working on another book uh, just before the war happened. So I have many, many ties with Ukraine and it was getting pretty impossible to stay, stay anywhere else. So that's why I came. So for you, it is partly about showing physical solidarity with those you know and I suppose with your ancestors and also bearing witness to what's happening in a part of the world with which you have a deep connection. Well, yes, but that would be pretty selfish if I just follow that. Fortunately, I'm a journalist and a writer, so there could be some use of my skills. I I uh, speak Russian, which is widely spoken here. I do understand Ukrainian, uh, and I can read Ukrainian, and um, I, I do write in English, so I can bring the stories from the people, the important stories that don't always make it to the English-speaking world, to the international community, and I can bring the stories there so you guys can see for yourself what is happening, and that's how I see my role. So I'm not here to indulge my uh, Ukrainian ancestry. I'm here to hopefully help. When we spoke previously, and I would urge listeners to go back to a previous episode of the Byline Times podcast in which you and I spoke about the rise of Putin. You spoke about the creation of the mafia state and also the desire that he had to expand and to create a Eurasian empire. Until we had that conversation, I'd not really heard or understood that concept. But is this what we're seeing played out now then, the desire to create a Eurasian empire by Putin? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I, I've been, uh, not just me, a number of us, a uh, number of scholars who deal with the subject, historians and political analysts and writers um, have been warning and trying to bring their attention to this obsession, the effects uh, of Putin that he has been talking about from the start go, from the very beginning, um, uh, in fact, as he came to power, he wanted to restore the Soviet Union. For him, it was the biggest tragedy of his life. And um, he actually looking back into the Russian Empire, he wants to restore the powerful Russia, the Russia that goes according to this Eurasian theory from Lisbon to Vladivostok and basically grab the whole uh, Europe and add it to the Asian part of Russia and um, uh, rule this, uh, and not just rule this area, but also uh, go into history 
as the ruler of this great empire. That's a very important point here. Uh, he, he, it's a fact, and uh, it has been noted by many people who pay attention to Putin's development, so to say, that he, he, he is now aware of his own mortality because of, you know, age and also because of COVID and because of spending time by himself. So he wants, on top of everything that he has, the might the financial might that he has and the political power. He wants the next step, which is going into history as a great leader. And on your account of it, Zarina, he has really made no secret of that. But perhaps because talk of empires by leaders, it feels in some way so old fashioned because it appeared after the end of the Cold War that, Russia, or at least in the form of the USSR, had been vanquished. This wasn't really taken seriously, but Putin, on your account of it, really made no secret of this ambition. No, and he actually did mention that in a very angry manner at um, one of the European conferences or meetings. I, I can't remember right now which one, but he said, you have not listened to us for all this time. Now you listen. Yes, he, he. all you had to do is just listen to what they are saying and you would know that he would wage a war, full-scale aggression. And if you listen to them now, you will hear that they are willing to start the World War III. And I, I again, I don't want to be an alarmist, but... Uh, everything that I've been warning about before, as you know, uh, he, he, he proved to be true. And it's not because I have some kind of uncanny gift of prediction. It's just because he's doing what he's saying. <laughs> exactly that. And because it is such an awful truth to contemplate, perhaps Western leaders just thought it was rhetoric, assumed that it was talk nothing more than talk, just posturing on the world stage. That is correct. That is correct. I think that we are dealing here with a defense mechanism and also the lack of resources on the Western part to process uh, this information. It is foreign on so many levels. Uh, and it's inhumane. It's uncivilized. It's like you said is outdated, uh, and so it doesn't ring a bell. And then as a result, people just push it away and just decide that if they are not looking, it's not going to happen. But unfortunately, that's not the reality. It's a very large country, and although economically it's underdeveloped, it still has enough resources to uh, start something quite terrible, just as they're doing now. Talk to me about Odessa and why that is so strategically important. Well, uh, first of all, it's a port and it's access to the Black Sea. So that, that would be a very important city, naturally, to Putin. Uh, also, it's a traditionally Russian-speaking city. Uh, it's very international. Uh, there's mixture of 
people and towns here, ethnicities, um, there are traditionally a large Jewish population. And while in the 90s it was diminished, but um, because of Ukrainian tolerant policy, actually a lot of Jews came back. So there's a big, uh, both religious and non-religious Jewish communities. There's a big Chechen community here. At some point, Chechens were escaping Chechnya during the war that Putin again waged on that country. Um, and um, there are Greeks. Um, if you walk down the street, you see there's a lot of diversity here. People look different, unlike in the other areas of Ukraine, which uh, they tend to be more Caucasian. Um, so, uh, Odessa is also economically strong because of the seaport again. Um, it, it, the main language spoken here is Russian, so uh, the Kremlin would hope that uh, Odessa would want to surrender. Uh, and um, historically, uh, it's an important uh part an important former city of the Russian Empire even uh, and uh, it's a symbol I guess it is a symbol and this is I think why knock on wood they still haven't really attacked it there's also a lot I'm not a military expert I've been following um, but I don't want to go in detail but generally speaking they didn't have enough power to uh, get their paratroopers on land uh, and the defeat and the sinking of the Moskva cruiser was a terrible blow on their fleet, on the Russian fleet and also on their plan to actually capture Odessa. Mm. But they haven't given up presumably. I mean Odessa has been bombarded. There have been reports in newspapers in the UK and through news organisations in the UK in recent times uh, suggesting that attacks are ongoing there, that clearly the Russians aren't willing to, to pack up and go away anytime soon. No, and there's still several ships in the vicinity, uh, but according to everybody I spoke here, they don't have enough power to really for the operation for a successful operation. They, it's true that there are explosions. I think they mainly targeted um, infrastructure objects in the Odessa region, not in the city itself. There was, I think, a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago, an explosion within the city. However, there's some smaller um, hostilities going on all the time. Yesterday I was went uh, to interview um, a couple of people who live by the sea and we were sitting at the veranda and you hear, you, I, as I interview them and record them speak, uh, we hear the sounds of air defense uh, going on. There's some gunshots far away but uh, and they were asking me, are you afraid? But uh, you know, I'm from San Francisco. We have people shooting guns <laughs> all the time, so not really. But um, the, the um, uh, air raids are going on, and I have to say that here people are quite negligent. You would hear the air raid, and you see people walking the dogs down the street and pe children playing. 
Wow, that's remarkable, given everything that is going on. And of course, uh, Putin has met with stiff resistance and has been forced to scale back, I would suggest, his military ambitions, at least for the time being in Ukraine. But there is the, the frightening prospect of a sustained assault on the east of the country, where, of course, Donetsk and Luhansk have, uh, are places where Russia has already uh, effectively taken over, hasn't it, really, from 2014 onwards, and an attempt to use that as a bridgehead then into the rest of the country. Yes, um, this is very true. They are focusing all their efforts and all their resources right there, right now. And as Zelensky said, the battle for Donbass has started. And just today, I didn't have time to put my daily report yet, but I started to prepare it. And uh, I saw that the um, governor or uh, the, the top person on the military um, uh, of the Donbass area of Luhansk said that 80% of the area has been already occupied by the Russian forces, unfortunately, and uh, they have been bombarded them just the way they bombard Mariupol. Uh, and I've been interviewing people nonstop, including people from Donbass. The other day uh, in Moldova, actually, I spoke to a young woman from Valdavaja. You might be familiar with this uh, name. It's, yeah, uh, yeah. It's, a, it's a town which used to be about like 100,000 people. Uh, and there's a whole area of uh, villages around. And um, according to its governor, it's no more. It doesn't exist anymore as a city with infrastructure. It has been erased by shelling and bombing. And um, so she told me that she actually turned out to be, it's funny because I walked into this uh, large uh, center for the refugees and I asked the first volunteer I meet to show me around and we start speaking and it turns out that she's from Volnavaha. I start interviewing her and she's a sister of Ilya Panamarenka who is um, the defense reporter for the Kiev Independent. And for people who follow the war in Ukraine, uh, he's one of the major sources uh, and a remarkable journalist so that their family suffered from it firsthand. They're from Volnavaha. Volnavaha is erased. Uh, and then he studied in Mariupol, international relations, no less. And so Mariupol is no more. And now he's in Kiev reporting. Uh, uh, you can uh, just today, there was an article uh, with this interview in the Byline Times. You can find it on Twitter. Um, it's Of course, when you speak to people who've been through that, who still haven't heard from their parents for a month and they don't know if this parent is there or not and their houses have been destroyed. I, I, I mean, I'm a writer and I write about it, but I still haven't found the words to describe the feeling you get. Absolutely. Uh, one thing intrigues me, Zarina, in that there are parts of Ukraine that are Russian-speaking or predominantly Russian-speaking. And I guess it's part of Putin's narrative to suggest that these are, in inverted commas, really Russian areas. Although, of course, he claims that all of Ukraine is a Russian area. 
on the ground before the war, would people in Ukraine that were predominantly Russian-speaking have considered themselves to be Russian or Ukrainian? No, they are Ukrainian. I, I actually, I, I know that, but I do check it with people when I speak to them, and they adamantly Ukrainian. Like this morning, I was interviewing three gentlemen from Kherson. Uh, who spoke perfect Russian to me, and one had a Russian surname, and they specified that that traditionally uh, this area was Russian-spoken. That doesn't mean that they don't speak Ukrainian. They all are fluent in Ukrainian. And by the way, these languages are of the same language groups. I'm a linguist by education, and uh, I studied the root language of, 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 this, of both Russian and Ukrainian, which is old uh, Slavic, ancient Slavic. They, they, they both take roots in that language, so there are similarities. Um, and we can understand, like if people speak slower, it's easier to understand. Um, but, but people here are fluent in Ukrainian and Russian, but some families habitually spoke Russian at home, so they're more used to it. But in fact, some people are telling me that now they're switching to Ukrainian, and they say that Putin, like nobody else, uh, brought a unity to them and also the desire to switch to Ukrainian from Russian because before they wouldn't pay any attention. They would switch from one language to another like bilingual people do. But now um, everything Russian uh, becomes so toxic and so negative and infused with all these negative emotions, of course, that they, they don't want to speak Russian. Yes, but, but it, would, it would not have been the case then. I mean, clearly, th there will be individual exceptions to this. Everybody is you know, free to make up their own mind, I suppose. But it, it would not have followed that just because you spoke Russian that you identified with Russia primarily or with Putin. Well, you, I mean, this is like, you know, there are a lot of jokes about it, but I mean, just because uh, Latin America speaks Spanish or Portuguese doesn't mean that they're part of Portugal or Spain and, you know, so on and so forth. I mean, uh, Hitler used this argument, you know, with the language and I, 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 we are so far ahead of this that only Putin can use that as any claim to Ukrainians territory. Yes, so uh, you feel that Ukraine will be, continue to be resolute, perhaps even more united in opposition to, to Russia and Putin following this outrageous invasion. Yeah, well, you know, just today, uh, my second interview of the day was, uh, was uh, this beautiful young woman from Mariupol, a mother to a three-year-old, and uh, she was telling me that exactly that, that before they didn't pay attention which language they are speaking, they would just switch from one to another and it all was very harmonious and, and they didn't even, not necessarily, they didn't mind Russians as much, you know, before 2014, 
the, it, it was all okay before it started to turn into the, the, this massive war on them. Because, of course, the war, for, for, for our listeners who knew to this topic or didn't necessarily um, read on the whole history of this, um, I wouldn't call it a conflict of this tragedy, that the war really started eight years ago when uh, Russia annexed Crimea and then started the separatist wars and started to fund um, the uh, separatists and they started to incite, which they do not just in Ukraine but elsewhere, uh, the ethnic conflicts. Um, and that that's so Ukrainians consider themselves being attacked at that war for the last eight years. Yes. And and people can see perhaps now a trend emerging when you look at the destruction of Mariupol, when you look at the destruction of Grozny in Chechnya, exactly. the Russian army, you, you start to see that there is a pattern here and it's a pattern that goes beyond conventional war. It's a pattern of terrorism, of absolute annihilation and destruction. Exactly. And if you look further, you actually will see that it started within the country. It started locally in 1999, just before Putin came to power. Um, he, uh, well, not personally, but uh, the FSB and KGB, the uh, secret services, the uh, security services, are responsible for the explosions of the residential buildings in Moscow and a couple of other cities in Rizan. And um, it, 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 I actually interviewed a couple of experts on, on these subjects. And it's very dangerous to be an expert on the subject because most of the experts, like Anna Politkovskaya, a very well-known journalist, were killed. So basically, whoever tried to solve this mystery of the exploded residential buildings that killed I don't remember the exact number now, but I believe it was about 1,000 people. Uh, I might be wrong with the number, but there were there was a significant amount of lives taken by these explosions. And yeah. there, was, there was evidence that these explosions were set up by the FSB. And the reason for it was to instill fear and to then uh, turn around and say we need a strong hand uh, and we have an external enemy. These are all the propaganda tricks, the old tricks that the KGB had, that the combat propaganda had, that now we all need to unite and fight at that point the Chechens who are attacking us and taking our lives. They're terrorists, they're foreign, we need to fight them and here comes Putin and he had the speech that was going around saying we will catch them. It's like Churchill in reverse, you know, like some perverted Churchill will catch them in the toilets, he said at that time. <laughs> and uh, so and you see him doing it over and over again, you know, the in Syria, this was again the same thing. They're aliens, they, are, they have different religion, they're dangerous to us quote-unquote, Slavs, and um, and then uh, here comes, he turned around and then he picked up Ukraine, because Ukraine, um, 
is very different from Russia because of its history, actually. Its identity is remarkably different. They used to be, I won't go deep into history, uh, but um, you can look up if you're interested. Uh, I just had a a uh, short interview with two Ukrainian thinkers in the Euromaidan press where they explain the difference. Ukraine used to be a part of Western Europe, a part of Lithuanian Polish um, state. And uh, they have different values. They have individualistic beliefs and values, while Russia was, for the most of its history, um, uh, uh, having a collective mentality. So it's actually quite remarkable when you look at it this way and you see that although there's certain similarities, you know, ethnic or linguistic, Uh, There's a fundamental difference in mentality. And so Ukraine wants to be independent. It always tries to independence. Their uh, state concept is based on the local power. The power is going from, uh, it's horizontal and it's uh, coming from the people. While in Russia, it is very clearly vertical and um, You you can't overlook it if you start looking at history. And so, of course, Putin understood that the danger is coming from Ukraine that has been going on through various revolutions, through Orange Revolution. And then, of course, you might have heard about Maidan. And so whenever Ukrainians don't like their rulers, uh, they are taking it to the streets and they are making a lot of noise and they're taking them down. And as you have seen, perhaps in different footage, they are not afraid to stand barehanded against a tank, while Russians are usually struck with fear. Yes, and the, the Maidan revolution, this was the, uh, that translates as the revolution of dignity. That's what happened in February 2014, when Ukraine had a president who was Russian-facing, believed to have gained power through corrupt means, through a rigged election, and people, rather than being cowed by that, took to the streets, said that they wanted a Western-facing government, they wanted a free and fair election, and through the virtue of peaceful protest in the main, ensured that there was a change in power in their country. Yes, yeah, that is all true. You've been in Moldova, uh, Zarina, and uh, I know you've written about this for the Byline Times and people should head over to bylinetimes.com to have a look at what you've written uh, about Moldova. But I'm just struck, you know, here in the UK, the government has made quite a song and dance about the fact that we're allowing people from Ukraine to settle in this country through a visa scheme, which is rather more generous than the traditional refugee route into this country. But Moldova the poorest country in Europe, you say, has had something like 400,000 Ukrainian refugees. How is it coping with that? Uh, Yes, it's a very good question. I I actually was, um, well, not shaken, but certainly impressed with with Moldova and the whole situation in Moldova because... um, there's there's an article on the byline times and also I put 
a post with more pictures and like more personal impressions on my blog on Medium uh, because it's a very poor country. And just walking down the street, uh, I felt as if I was falling down in the past. You know, I grew up in the Soviet Union and it wasn't the most, you know, beautiful environment, just very poor too. And so you see the same thing. There are crumbling buildings there cracks in the asphalt, they're missing doors or windows, they're abandoned buildings, a lot of homeless people. I have to note here that in San Francisco we have more homeless people than in Moldova. So, uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> that's quite, that is quite a statistic, Zarina. Yeah. Oh, well, it's yeah. just ex experiential, but as I was walking down the main street and thinking to myself, oh, my God, these people are so poor, and look at all the, you know, poor handicapped people and older people selling pieces of soap or God knows what on the asphalt and th this drunk is sleeping, you know, at the entrance to the store. And then I suddenly I had this flashback to Tenderloin in San Francisco yeah. where yeah. you literally... You can't enter or you'll have to jump over the bodies on the street. That's the whole entire... It's interesting. When you mention the homeless people in San Francisco, it's probably 20 years since I was in San Francisco. And I remember running or rather walking the gauntlet of a, you know, a kind of a, an entire population of homeless people in the suburb of uh, Tenderloin, which is just off downtown in San Francisco. Uh, oh. <laughs> Adrian, believe me, you've seen nothing. 20 yeah. years ago, we had no, I mean, I've been there for what, 25 years, 26 yeah. years. I, I mean, uh, it, it's an entirely different subject, but I, I, I think our mayor is now dealing with the humanitarian crisis that we have, and it's of entirely different nature. But I, I, I just had to mention it because I, I don't want to be all negative about Moldova. Mm. I was really impressed with the way they are dealing with the crisis. They're, I have to mention also that this is a small country and Russia already grabbed a part of it. There is this transistor oh, in Russian Pridnestrovia area, uh, which is pro-Russian, pro-Soviet even area. And I spoke to people there about it. Um, it allegedly run by criminals and it's completely lawless, uh, dangerous part, small and dangerous part of the world where people are very pro-Russian. And the rest of Moldova, as poor as they are, they, they it's a young country and they love their independence and they are proud of their country and they want to stay independent. They mm. don't want Russia to come after them, the way they're coming after Ukraine. So they are afraid, and it uh, translates into their politics. So they they refuse to do certain things, certain sanctions are not on the list. Mm. But they certainly are very helpful. And that uh, gigantic center there uh, that I have visited is well-equipped, uh, well-run. There are a lot of Moldovan volunteers it's not the only center. That's the only one I've been to, but they told me about many, many others. I also saw another center on the border in the Palanca, um, and there, there was this uh, refugee camps with the tents uh, that is currently not filled because 
uh, right now, actually, there are a lot of Ukrainians that are coming back. Um, and when, when you mention these problems in the UK that, you know, people are worried or concerned about the amount of refugees coming, probably it's worth mentioning that Ukrainians actually want to go back home. They don't want to stay abroad. So many people I spoke to who are currently temporarily abroad can't wait to get back home. And many, many people here in Ukraine are saying, we don't want to go anywhere. This is mm-hmm. our land. This is our home. We want to stay here. Yeah. Uh, Zarina, I'll come back to you in a moment. And just to say, if you are listening live on Byline Radio and you've got a comment to make on Russia's war in Ukraine, or if you've got a question to ask Zarina, who is in Ukraine at the moment, by all means, do request access to a microphone in the bottom left-hand corner of your screen, and we'll try and let you on as long as you've got something positive to contribute or a serious question to ask. And if you're trying to track down Zarina's work, the first place I would direct you to would be her Twitter stream at Zarina Zabriskie, which is written, as it sounds, at Zarina Zabriskie. She has a blog as well. And as she says, you can find her on Medium at zarinazabriskie.com. That's her website, and that'll take you through as well to her her Medium site as well. I'm Adrian Goldberg. You are listening to Byline Radio, or if it's through catch-up, then you're listening to the Byline Times podcast. And if you want to support the work of Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast, please consider taking out a subscription to the Byline Times. You'll find details of how to subscribe to our brilliant monthly newspaper at the website bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. We were talking about Odessa earlier on, Zarina, and if Russia were to gain Odessa, that would put it in a good geopolitical place to perhaps expand into the the Russian-speaking areas of Moldova as well across the border. So that, that, that would be a concern not just for Moldova, but I guess for NATO, for Europe and the rest of the Western world. This is a horrifying thought. I can't even entertain it, to be honest with you, Adrian. And as you know, I'm currently here and... I mean, it's unimaginable. I really hope it doesn't happen. Um, Of course, you know, right now we can't rule anything out at all. And uh, I think that what we have now is of a concern to NATO regardless. Uh, I think that if if this invasion is not stopped, if we as the Western world, as the world in general, not necessarily Western, fail to stop this uh, full-scale aggression, this, you know, completely illegal military operation, we are facing an imminent danger to not just existing world order, but to, to the safety of the whole, I mean, it sounds big, but I will say it, of the whole humankind, because we're dealing with, uh, at this point, uh, a a psychopath who is in charge of massive nuclear weapons and who is capable of any minute uh, 
you know, taken our soul out, basically. I, 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 th- I think we need to look at it in from that angle. I don't think that what's happening is being taken seriously enough. And we, we discussed this already during this talk, that it's a defense mechanism. And I do understand the logic. But I, I think the task of the journalists like myself, like you, like our newspaper, uh, other outlets, is to shed light on it and bring clarity and really um, put the, the danger that Putin's regime presents to everybody's, um, you know, to the, to the top of the agenda, so to say. It's not yeah, well, I, I, I was chatting earlier on a on a previous byline radio and byline times podcast, uh, Zarina, about the French election and drawing a link between attempts at Russian interference in UK elections, in Russian support for Trump, in the close relationship historically, anyway, between Putin and Marine Le Pen. I mean, again, even if it wasn't always clear at the time, it is becoming clear now that there is a pattern of interference and involvement, either by Putin himself directly, or in most cases, through his agents, through his oligarchs, through people who support him and who owe loyalty to him through the particular kind of mafia system that operates in Russia, so that this is not a conflict that is going to be contained or indeed is being played out within just one country. Exactly, exactly. And that's why I uh, love Byland Times and that's why I write for Byland Times because um, the team at Byland Times has been clear on what's going on for many years by now. And I feel that this is... Um, something that needs to to be covered by more um, major publications and that, you know, it, it's high time we realize that, uh, like you said, Brexit, Marine Le Pen, um, some uh, political developments, say, in Holland or Austria or Italy, and of course, Trump, uh, are all connected to the same source. And this this is a, a hybrid war by the Kremlin. This is, you know, it has been planned for years. And we, we wrote about it, we spoke about it. There's the information warfare is a big part of the hybrid war. Um, and uh, they have a powerful apparatus that thankfully now people are starting to see and ban, such as RT, Russia Today, or Sputnik, uh, or many, many outlets that are in disguise and that masquerade as the independent uh, Western democratic press outlets, but are sponsored by the Kremlin, and that uh, the Kremlin is uh, not anymore, thankfully, to the sanctions, but previously was injecting money into the far right and far left. So 
creating this red-brown coalition and basically jumping on any opportunity to incite the ethnic conflicts and uh, hijacking any referendum, including the Brexit. It was like one of the biggest victories they had, along with Trump. Uh, in fact, one of the articles I'm working on right now is a so-called Kherson referendum. So they are at it again. Uh, they are trying to stage a referendum which will show that people of Kherson chose to become a part of Russia, one option, or uh, create an independent Kherson People Republic, just like Donetsk or Luhansk. And I, I just put... And, and of course, Serena, that will be independent in inverted commas. <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, of yeah. course. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 uh, there will be an article. I'm working on it now because I spoke to many people, and it is absolutely clear that uh, this is just yet another. Well, some people call it disinformation, but it's information warfare. It's a tactic, and a referendum is a tool. They actually tried it in the states as well. Uh, there's, uh, you know. <clears throat> quite a massive movement on taxes um, exiting the United States. We even had Cal exit, California exit. And I, I investigated it. And the first, the like, first 10 minutes of investigating, what do you think I find? The Russian money. It's, <laughs> right there. it's not even like you don't have to be a journalist. It's yeah. there, yeah. like, hiding in the, you know, wide broad light hiding in plain sight as we say yes yes yeah yes. and it's interesting that marine le pen of course is right down to the wire it's between her and macron in a in the runoff for the french election although she has backed away from a formal frexit french exit from the european union she is talking about having a referendum or a series of referendums if she becomes president, which would, in in her eyes or in her supporters' eyes, give France back greater sovereignty, give France back greater control of migration, and would, in the words of my contributor today, uh, Philippe, it, it would set France on a collision course with the European Union. And Le Pen's party, under its previous name as Front National, received a nine million exactly. euro loan from a now defunct Russian bank. You know, <laughs> there, there are dots to be joined if you want to join them. Uh, and I think everybody by now, most people have heard about this nine millions. And mm. now everybody has seen what Putin is doing in Bucha or Penn or Mariupol. So it's still shocking. You know, I have a lot of friends in France. And I, uh, on my way to Moldova, I stopped by in France and then in Belgium. And I spoke to many people in France. And they are in shock that so many people are still voting for Marie Le Pen. Mm. That's one for another day. Anyway, we shall see what happens with the uh, French election. And uh, if you're listening to this as a catch up on the Barland Times podcast, I would recommend that you listen to my interview with Philippe Auclair, a top, well-respected French journalist talking about Le Pen. Uh, and a part of that, his, uh, Le Pen's, uh, her connections with Vladimir Putin. Zarina, it's been fantastic to speak to you. Uh, I would recommend everybody to follow Zarina on Twitter, at Zarina Zabriskie, uh, and to check you out on your blog and your medium as well. And I hope we can speak again very soon, because it's been really enlightening to speak to you and hear from you. Thank you.
I hope so too. And by the time we're done, the air raid is over, so I can just <laughs> relax and <laughs> probably go to bed by now. Well, so, yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for everybody who listens and who cares. And Ukrainian people really, really need that right now. There are ways to help. If anybody wants to help or interested, please uh, don't hesitate to contact me. Uh, there's a number of ways right now being in Ukraine and speaking to people, I'm finding out um, so many ways to actually help. And it doesn't necessarily have to be money. Um, so um, do do contact me if you, if you are willing to help. Brilliant. Okay. It's at Zarina Zabriskie on Twitter. That's probably the simplest shortcut for people. Absolutely. Yeah. Zarina, thank you again. And just a reminder, you can read some of Zarina's gilded words in the pages of the Byline Times. Do check it out at bylinetimes.com. Really fascinating report, her most recent one from Moldova. And if you do want to support Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast, please take out a subscription or better still, a membership to the Byline Times. You get more details at bylinetimes.com. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Adrian, Adrian, just one more word. We probably should mention the Byline Festival up forthcoming on the 29th, starting on the 29th of April. I'll actually be there in person to speak there. I'm flying back. Are you? To speak there, yes. Will you still be there on the Saturday when I come? Yes, yes, I will. We will meet at last then. Absolutely. Uh, Great. And, uh, yeah, no, well, uh, you, you've mentioned it, so let's uh, let's go with it. Byline Festival uh, from the 29th of April to the 1st of May, so three days, all sorts of stuff going on, not only intelligent conversation and debates, but music, art, poetry, spoken word. It's at the Ackland Village Market in North Kensington, on the Portobello Road. If you want to find out more, go to bylinefestival.com. That's bylinefestival.com. Describes itself as a mix of inquisitive journalism, free speech, comedy, music, and all-round entertainment. So, not to be missed. Good luck. Can't wait to see you there, Zarina. Thank you. Thank you so much, Adrian. Thank you, everyone. Have a good night. Cheers. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Bye-bye now.